Yo, what's going on? This is your host, Juan Gray, and welcome to the Words to Success show. Today, I have the pleasure of bringing on Dwayne J. Clark. Dwayne is a creative entrepreneur, executive producer, author, and the CEO of Aegis Living. He started the company with just two employees in 1997 and just recently celebrated a 20-year anniversary since the birth of his company. What I'm very interested in is how he grew Aegis Living from just a dream to now a company with nearly $2 billion in real estate assets and over 2,100 staff members in 28 locations in the United States. This guy is super interesting. He has all the qualities of a true leader and someone who just never stops. Get ready for a badass conversation filled with executable knowledge and raw inspiration here on the Words to Success show with the man himself, Dwayne J. Clark. Vamos. Vamos. I think there's a lot of people, a lot of people waiting for someone to knock on their door and say, hey, hey, you just won $100,000 and you're famous now and you're going to have your own reality show. Stop it. Stop it. It's not going to happen. You got to be in charge of your own success. You got to take the initiative. You got to have the passion because it's a competitive world and people will pass you after you if you don't. Hey, I know you're going to reach some level of greatness. You're going to do something amazing in this world. Uh, but never forget that you lived off potato soup. Dwayne J. Clark, welcome to the most badass show on the planet, my man. How do you do? Oh, it's awesome to be here. I feel privileged. Man, thank you for coming on. I'm excited to to be speaking with you, bro. Uh, I'm excited to be here and, and talk to all your listeners. You have a great show. I appreciate that, man. So, I mean, you've done so much in, in your life so far, and you, you keep on going every day. I want to know... How did, like, I know it's a broad question, man, but, like, how did you get to where you are right now? Like, can you tell me a little bit about about your, your early days when you were maybe in your, in your 20s, man? Like, bring me back to Dwayne J. Clark in his 20s. Who was that guy, and how have you evolved to, to basically be, be the man you are right now? Well, I'm, I'm going to maybe even take it back a little for, further and, and go back in my sure. teens because... You know, I, I was I was raised in kind of a dysfunctional household. I think that's become a popular term. We we all like to say that. But had a had a dad who was pretty abusive physically and mentally. Um, I was the youngest of four kids, uh, kind of a juvenile delinquent. Um, had two major priorities in my life: um, racing cars and girls. And they vacillated which one was number one back and forth. So um, you know, I I I I really didn't care that much about school. And my mom actually took me and, and put me in a private school when I was 16 years old. And it really changed my life. Um, but during that time, my mom struggled to make ends meet. I got to go to school on a church scholarship. And uh, we were always without money. I mean, we were poor, poor. And not, you know, I tell people not poor, like I couldn't buy the latest Jordans for, but like poor, we didn't have enough money to eat. And so she came home one day. And she walked in our little tiny one bedroom apartment, opened the door and walked in and she said, you know, we don't have any money. Like, you know, what's what's new? You know, it's like the same old song. And she walked toward the refrigerator in our, in our tiny little apartment, opened the refrigerator door. I can still see that little light come on the refrigerator and looked at in it. And there was uh, a, a small can of condensed milk, uh, a cube of butter and uh, uh, almost a whole onion. And she turned to me and she said, you know what, I'm going to have to uh, steal some, some food from work. She was a cook. And, you know, as a smart aleck kid, I said, oh, man, 
all right, great. We'll steal some great steaks. And she came over and gave me a good whack across the face. And she goes, you know, this is not a comedic situation. This is serious. I've never stole anything in my life, but this is a dire situation where I have to do this. So four o'clock the next morning, it was like a bank heist. You know, got this big bucket, went in, stole like 20 some potatoes from work. And she said, we're going to pay these back. You know, this is going to be a loan. And uh, so for two weeks, we lived off potato soup. And I, I, I tell people it's probably one of the best business schools I ever went to because she would say, you know, hey, I know you're going to reach some level of greatness. You're going to do something amazing in this world, uh, but never forget that you lived off potato soup. And you'll probably have employees that work for you realize they're going to go through bad times from time to time and you have to be there for you, for, for them. And so that was, a, that was a real turning point in my life because the two things my mom gave me was, you know, passion for life. And, and integrity. And so with that comes confidence that you can do anything you want. And that, you know, that's the first thing that I think is, is such rocket fuel for success is having confidence that, um, you know, there's no reason you can't do anything in, in, in the world that you want to do if you're passionate and you persevere. So those were some of the early lessons that I learned. And when I started my own company, we started the Potato Soup Foundation. We've given away hundreds and hundreds of grants to people. Um, and uh, help people that are in dire need of, you know, medical assistance that, that need food, that need clothing, that need shelter, you know, all kinds of things. So it's come full circle. That's inspiring, man. Who, who did you have to become, do you feel like, before you, you got started with your foundations and everything? Like, how did, give me that little gap from that period of time to you maybe starting your first company. Yeah, well, I started, uh, you know, I went and worked for other people in, in senior housing. I, and, you know, I really, my first career was in, in, uh, in prisons and law enforcement. And I got out of college and I thought I wanted to be this famous criminal defense attorney. And uh, my buddies, my, my junior in college, they said, I think you're too nice a guy to defend, you know, bad, bad guys. And I don't think that's your personality. And so I went and got this job. I actually worked in a prison, a maximum security prison. And, you know, because I was fairly educated, every six months I, could, I got promoted. And I, I did some crazy stuff. I mean, I learned how to be a hostage negotiator. I was on a tactical team. You know, I did all kinds of stuff. Ran a prison healthcare center. And um, after about six years of being crazy, having some crazy jobs, I said, I'm going to quit and go back to school and become a lawyer and my sister said you know I'm on this board of the senior housing company this is in 1985 before you were born and said you should go check this out because seniors are exploding and you know I said man I, I know about bank robbers and murderers and you know thieves I, I don't know anything about old people and you know, I was 26 years old and so you know this is before we even had computers if you could fathom that time so I went down to the library and I read the study that was about 400 pages, you know, deep. And it's talked about how seniors are going to be everywhere. And this is the future. So I went uh, to this interview and these people that knew my sister thought, oh, this is going to be an informational interview. This guy's really not qualified to work for us and stuff. So I knew that. And one of, one of the lessons I would give your, 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 your listeners is the fact that always over-prepare for an interview. And so I went in, I had a month to prepare for this interview. And I went in with a manual that I prepared for them that was two inches thick. And uh, 
And I had done a competitive analysis. I'd looked at their company. I'd secret shop them. I'd done all these things. So when I when I went in for this interview, they they were gonna, gonna give me like 10 minutes and they gave me two hours. And they're like, man, we were blown away by what you did. So I over-impressed them and that 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 launched my career just doing that. And so, you know, oftentimes, and I've, I've interviewed over 20,000 people in my career, and I'm always shocked at how little people prepare. They kind of just say, hey, here I am, you know, here I am, aren't I great, you know, hire me. And, you know, part of it is our unemployment, because, you know, nationwide, we're about 3.7. I live in the Seattle area, about 3.2% unemployment. So jobs are abundant, but that's not always going to be true. And it's not always true for the best job. So if you want to get a great job, over-prepare, blow people away. Just don't walk in and act like you're a supermodel and they're lucky to have you there. You know, really do your due diligence so that when you walk walk in that room that people understand that you really want that job. And I think that's one of the things that people just don't do enough of, right? And just by doing that can change the whole game. As for example, as, a, as an actor, um, how many people get there a couple minutes before there's a there's a saying in this in the industry if you're 50 minutes early you're or you're not like you're late you know what I mean so I always try to get there half an hour before and I did my preparation hours and a couple of days before sometimes you get the night before but you always have to be we want to be the most ready person in the room right right and as a salesperson as well you you go in for a sale dress the part get there early go to a coffee shop a couple of minutes before and make sure that you're in the the right state of mind so that you can actually close the sale so what do you think has been the things that have come kind of back, you know, back again? Um, what are those, those key elements that you see and people that really impress you in those meetings that are prepared? What other signs do you see? Well, a lot of people, you know, people have a lot of little tricks. And I, I coach people on little tricks. Like one of the little tricks that, that I say, if you're going in for an interview, maybe call the HR person and say, hey, I'd just like to come see you before the interview to ask you a couple questions in, in person. And if they allow you to do that, come an hour early for the meeting, for your meeting with the HR person and sit in the reception area. And why is that important? Because you can pick up the soul of a company in that reception area. You can see, how does the person answer the phone? Are they happy? Are they polite? Are people walking by? Are they laughing? Are they stressed out? Are people walking really fast back and forth? So it's a hectic environment. So that information you can absorb. And you know, this getting a job is a two-way street. You know, it's like a marriage. You want to make sure she likes you as much as you like her. So that's your due diligence. And then when I always go for an interview, when I'm when I'm you know back in the old days when dinosaurs were on the earth, when you know when I when I was there, one of the things I always would do is I would look for clues in the office of the person I was in. And if you go, you know, I mean, if I was interviewing in your studio right now, I'd say, oh, well, obviously you're a boxer. You know, you've done some martial arts because I've been looking around at the things on the walls to say, what are the clues that this person's interested in? And then what I may do is send a, a, a thank you note and a small clipping about Muhammad Ali that was inspirational. And then you go, wow, this person's really in tune with me. Again, there's this laziness that happens in, in the interview process that people just don't go far enough. And that that laziness carries over into how successful you're going to be. It's just not to get the job. It's to be successful in life. You got to go, you know, as an actor, you got to be better. You got to be smarter. You got to be more spot on than everyone else. They have 500 other guys that want the job. And so 
to do that, it requires preparation, just like in martial arts or if you were a sprinter or if you're the best basketball player. It's, it's, it's the 10,000 practices, the reputation that Gladwell talks about. You, you have to do those things to be the best at anything. Agreed. You're talking about little tricks that you give, and I know you mentor a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of athletes. What are some little tricks that you feel, you know, people in their, you know, they're 18, they're 25, that there's something that they can start applying to their lives that maybe have helped you? Well, for athletes, you know, I I, I have a foundation called the D1 Foundation, and it's it's you know, two of my of my boys are the number one uh, uh, kids in their class for football one's a defensive end one's one's a linebacker and uh i mean they have 35 college offers from the top colleges in the country and one of the things i try to do is i try to prepare them for fame and try to prepare them for success and sometimes you'll get on this path of success and you'll you'll feel like that path is is linear and meaning that hey it's it's going to be a hockey stick it's just going to go like this right that that is a trick because that's not how life works. And uh, it's, you know, your success in life, I mean, less than 1% of people's lives work like that. The reality is it's more like a roller coaster. So you may have great success, and then you may have a tragic fall, and then you may go up a little bit, and then you go back down, and so on. So I try to prepare them for those tragic falls and say, when you, you will have a tragic fall, I, I, I guarantee you. In, in my life, I've had ups and downs personally and professionally. And so the, the, the number one thing I tell the young people is, you know, you have to prepare for the, for the downs as well as the ups. The life is just not going to give you the ups. And the, the, the problem right now, because of social media and because technology moves so fast and everything else, you know, you talk to these kids about a goal and they're like, well, I want to be a billionaire by the time I'm 30. Well, there's 2,000, you know, roughly 2,100 billionaires in the entire world, about 840 in the United States. But because of reality, television, everything, everybody thinks that's attainable. But, hey, in 10 years, I'm going to be a billionaire. Well, if you take away the people that inherited the money versus made the money, um, the amount of people that are billionaires by times 30, you can count on one hand. So I try to get people to to set realistic goals. That doesn't mean you can't dream. You can't manifest. I have a vision board in my bathroom that's eight feet tall and and three and a half feet wide that every day when i use the commode i look at that vision board and there's things on it that i'm focusing on and manifesting and saying that i'm gonna and it changes constantly right and um i will tell you about 80 percent of the things on that board come through not 100 percent, but about 80 percent on that thing and the reason for that is because i'm focusing on it i'm focusing i'm programming my brain and my body this, this is what's going to happen to me in my life. Now, here's the downside of manifesting. If you're a person that constantly thinks about negative things, oh, I'm going to have bad health. Oh, I'm going to go broke. Oh, I'm going to lose my girlfriend. Oh, guess what happens? You'll manifest that too. So the power of this positive thought, this power, we've heard it a thousand times, the positive of programming your brain in a way that is positive, because self-doubt creeps in all of us, creeps into me. But you just got to blow that out of your system and go back to saying, how do I think of my life in a positive way that's constructive? Absolutely. Yeah, because any thought you're going you're gonna to make it real, you know what I mean? So either it's positive or it's negative, the power is still there. 
and your mind right. is going to be like, okay, you said that. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah. It's going to start. It's going to start making that a reality in your life. What would you say is the difference between how you used to, if there is, how you used to set your objectives and your your goals to to now? You know what I mean? Like what before did did it was it a different process? And have you changed it and said, you know what, this is what works for me right now, and it's something that you realize could work for other people as well. Yeah, I think you know, again, ha having grown up really poor, you you, you want to be rich, right? That, that's that's the other end of the spectrum. So, but you don't know how to get there. You don't really know how, how I'm here. How do I get rich? And so the difference between me and let's say my 18 year old self, you know, which is uh, you know over 40 years ago is I, I look at things now like a ladder, okay? And I, I look at which rung of the ladder I'm on. And when I was 18, I used to look at the top of the ladder, right? And it was so far away, it was so far up there. And I would say, well, that's where I wanna be, but I don't know how to get there. And so one of the things that I changed dramatically is now I look at what's the next rung, okay? Just what's the next rung, because that's progress. And then when I get to that rung, I, I, I have gratitude about it. And I think that's a very important factor to say, hey, today I wake up, I'm not where I want to be, but I'm going to have gratitude about, hey, I'm healthy, I'm smart, I'm, I have shelf. I mean, whatever the things are that you have gratitude for. I have a loving family, I have a great wife, girlfriend, husband, whatever. So you have gratitude about that rung. And then you go, and then tomorrow my rung is this. These are what the things I'm going to manifest. And you just keep, you, you don't climb a ladder, you know, 10 rungs at a time. That's just not how life works. So when you define, you know, the next rung, then it's attainable. And then you're like, okay, what's the next rung? And that's, I think that's one of the things that technology, social media, reality television has ruined in a lot of our youth because they're looking too far up the ladder. And they're like, man, I can't jump those 20 rungs. I must be a failure. You're not a failure. It's just too big a jump. This is too big a jump, man. You you gotta mm -hmm. you gotta jump more incremental and smaller and achievable. Absolutely. And you were talking about health, right? And being grateful for different things and where you are right now without being complacent. And I think it's one of the things like me personally, for example, I'm always I'm always working towards something. But then if you're not grateful for the little things that you do have, the moment you realize like I had food poisoning a couple of days ago, man. And you, I felt like I was, I was in the horrible state. I was in bed for almost three days. And it's one of those things where I was just like, I don't care about anything. I just want to be able to walk again and feel okay. And be able to like, just like live properly without like feeling like I'm going to die. You know what I mean? And it's in those moments where you're just like, you don't care as much about those humongous objectives. All you want is just to have that health because without your health, without a couple of key elements in your life, you really don't have anything. So it's, I think it's one of those elements Like if right now, like, because it's so recent, I'm like, man, I wake up and I'm like, damn, look, look at me. I'm so, I'm, I'm so healthy, man. Like I could do this. I could do that. I have my hands. I have all these things, but it's, it's keeping that remembering those, you know, those moments. And I mean, food poison, not the worst I've been, but it's something that's recent and that you really feel horrible. Right. So I think that's super important to remember those key elements that you don't want to forget and you want to be grateful for as fuck every single day and then just keep moving forward from there and it keeps you hungry and but also grounded to remembering you already have so much. Well, it, yeah, because the key the key point you're making here is perspective, right? I mean, you you we tend to live with a, with a deficit mentality. 
we tend to think, oh, I don't have this, I don't have that, I want a new car, I want a new house, I want a new ring, I want it, you know, whatever you want. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but you don't really, they don't really take inventory of what you have. And again, that's that's the run you're on, uh, using the ladder analogy. That's the run you're on. So give gratitude for that. And that's going to help propel you because any businessman will tell you when, when he's trying to establish some, you know, great next level, the first thing that he does is says, what resources do I have today? What resources? What what are the capital resources? What are the human resources? What are the intellectual resources that I have? And so every great businessman will tell you, they always take inventory about what their strengths are. I don't know that youths always, young people always do that. They don't take inventory and say, well, what strengths do I have that I can leverage? You know, and that that's important because then you can go, okay, well, I can leverage these things, whether it's your intellect, your Rolodex, your capital, your parents' brand, whatever it is, you can leverage something. Mm-hmm. What's a applicable way of, of doing that, like taking inventory? How would you, how would you coach someone to, to do that? He says, you know what, I want to take inventory. Would you take them to open a notebook and start writing down in different categories what they have and then see what's something that they can offer to people and see, okay, this is the stuff that I, that I have that I can, you know, I can leverage? Well, I think there are things that are pretty obvious. Like when I, when I mentor my, my young uh, D1 uh, foundation guys, I talk to them about what do teachers say you're good at, you know? And, and, you know, we, I just had this conversation not long ago and one kid said, well, people say I'm, I'm a really good salesman. I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about that. And, and then he sells me, you know, he sells me verbally on how good he said, I go, you are a good salesman. It, well, that's a trait you should have. Somebody else said, well, I, I'm really good at math. I'm really good at numbers. Well, great. And maybe you can do budgets and forecasts and performance and all those kinds of things. So I, I think you've got to open your ears and say, I got to listen to what people are telling me I'm good at because those are the strengths that you build upon. Now, the opposite side of the coin is you got to know what you're bad at. Okay. So for me, I'm not, uh, I'm a big thinker, but I'm not always highly organized. So, you know, I, I, I need to have someone, my assistant sitting in the room. So she's probably shaking her head saying, yes, he needs to be highly organized, you know? Um, so, you know, you have to think about your weaknesses. When I started my company, I mean, we, we have, you know, a couple $3 billion in, in real estate. Um, I wasn't good in finance. So the things that I had to do is I had to hire a lot of people around me that was good in finance and they taught me finance, you know, over the course of 30 years, they taught me how to be good at finance. So you have to not only define your strengths, but you have to define your weaknesses. And the, the other thing I don't think, you know, that I would advise young people to do you know, when I was in my 20s, I used to wake up every Sunday morning, open the New York Times, and look at what the nonfiction bestsellers were. And anything that had to do with business, I vowed that I would read that book in less than 14 days. And so every Sunday, I would buy that book, and I would read it, and read it, and read it. And if you, if you go to my library today, you'll see hundreds and hundreds of books that are on finance or entrepreneurship or business or real estate or accounting or management or leadership or whatever. And so, you know, I had this thirst. And again, it gets back to passion and perseverance. I had this thirst to learn. You know, my, my mom, you're probably too young to even know who this is, but on the Johnny Carson show, there was a guy named Ed McMahon and he used to give these, uh, these publisher clearinghouse sweepstakes. He used to go to their house and give these the checks for a hundred thousand dollars. 
And my mom would say, well, no one's going to get come to your house and give you a sweepstake check. So you better get on with life, man. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of people, a lot of people waiting for someone to knock on their door and say, hey, hey, you just won $100,000 and you're famous now and you're going to have your own reality show. Stop it. Stop it. It's not going to happen. You know, that's, that is a one in 25 million, 25 million chance that that will happen. You got to be in charge of your own success. You got to take the initiative. You got to have the passion because it's a competitive world and people will pass you up if you, if you don't. Yeah, man. And if, out, of, out, out of all the books that you've read, which ones would you say that right now, if you have to think about it, are three that really stuck with you and impacted you? You know, there are probably books that I read a long time ago. I mean, uh, you know, Good to Great had a great influence on me. Um, Leadership as an Art had a great impact on me. There's an author by the name of Faith Popcorn that wrote a book called The Popcorn Report. And this is back in the early 90s. Um, But she predicted the future. And she was a futurist and a person that predicted future trends. And, um, you know, again, this is... 25 years ago or, or more, she, she talked about the, the, uh, the phenomenon of what was called cocooning, that we would do everything from our house, right? Mm-hmm. And this, this is before Amazon launched. And now look at what we do at our house. You know, we order our clothes to our house on Amazon. We watch Netflix. We watch Hulu. You know, all our music's piped in. I mean, we get food delivered to our house. I mean, it's, it's the, you know, the epitome of cocooning. We, we do everything in our house, right? It's our homes are, are these self-functioning little micro uh, cosms of society. Yep. And so I, I love kind of reading futurist books, you know, Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell's great, his books, uh, and thinking about, uh, you know, what kind of things can I, can I do to predict how I want to position myself? And, you know, everybody wants to come up with the, next great idea they want to have the next amazon company or the next facebook or whatever to do that you have to look at trends in society you have to you have to see where society's moving what kind of trends are out there and you know it just doesn't it just doesn't happen overnight you have to study those trends and read the tea leaves right and then put them all together for your own business plan absolutely yeah, and you do so many different things. Like you're in so many different industries. How do you keep yourself informed? And I mean, I know business is business, right? So there's so many skill sets that from one industry you can bring to another. And a lot of social entrepreneurs do that. But how do you keep yourself informed? And and always always knowing as you know as a leader in your companies to make the right decisions. You know, that's a great question. I I, I think the first thing you have to do in all those areas that you're really excited about, you have to hire people smarter than yourself. And that sounds like a simple thing. And, and I tell my staff for me, that's a low bar, but you know, the reality of the situation is you can't be intimidated by hiring people, you know, a lot smarter than you that our, our incoming president for our company was the president of Starbucks America. He oversaw 182,000 employees. Um, You know, I feel like he's smarter than me that our head of human resources um, was one of the heads of human resources for Amazon. Our head of marketing was one of the senior executives for Nordstrom. Um, so, you know, I, I hire people that have an abundance of intelligence and experience and, and energy and, and put them together. So that the first thing you have to do is, is surround yourself with really smart people that are um, super qualified 
and buy into the culture of a company. Culture is so important. And then, you know, I, I think the one thing that people get uh, trapped into is they do business with people sometimes that are not the most ethical or even nice people. And so I have a rule. I mean, if, if, uh, if I don't like the people, if I don't want them around my family, I don't care how much money they have, what kind of opportunity they have. If they're jerks, it's, it's just not worth it. And I think a lot of times people make these bad exchanges about doing business with people who are, who, who are bad people but have a lot of money. That's, that's a bad trade-off in life. And then, you know, the way I keep up is, is I'm a voracious reader. I probably, before I get out of bed in the morning, read two hours of a variety of things, um, you know, and all kinds of things uh, on, my, on my pages. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll read articles on meditation, and then I'll read an article on what the capital markets are doing, and then I'll read an article on, you know, the, the latest trends in healthcare, and then I'll read an article on the cure for Alzheimer's. And so, I mean, I may read, by the time I get out of bed in the morning, I wake up probably about quarter to six in the morning, and I, I may be in bed for two hours before I go down and work out or meditate. Um, I may read 40 articles. So you just, you got to constantly and voraciously increase your intelligence. And again, no one's going to pour intelligent juice all over your head. And all of a sudden you're brilliant about everything. It, it takes the work, man. You got to take the work, you know? So there, there's no easy way to it. And then, and again, that's the message for these people that are dreaming and sitting back and seeing themselves in their brand new Maybach or whatever they fantasize about driving is you're not going to get around the work. If you think you are, and hey, there's a quick, there's a quick fix to that. You better write a book about it because that's how you'll make your billions. It, 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 it doesn't, it doesn't exist. Yeah, it's like you know, people wanting that success but don't have any, any actionable you know habits that they're doing on a daily basis to actually to actually get there, man. And that's that's a really cool one. You know what I'm saying? Just the fact that you're reading for two hours every morning before you get out of bed, and that tell, t- tells a lot about the way you manage your time how would you say your time management has also changed? Like, I'm, I'm super curious about how you manage your 24 hours in a daily basis to be as efficient as possible. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and there, there's been a huge evolution um, in, in my day about how I manage my time. And technology really helps. Um, I probably get over, you know, 100 emails a day in various platforms, you know, or instant message or Facebook or, you know, easily over a hundred. And um, I, in the first sentence, I, I will make a decision whether I need to read the rest of the message, you know, or if, if this is really important to me. And you think about that, you know, how long does it take to read a whole, you know, a whole paragraph or something? Well, it's the difference between spending five seconds and 20 seconds. Um, but that five seconds or 20 seconds starts to add up, you know, and you do it on 50 emails and pretty soon you get another half hour in the day. So that's the first thing I do. Um, I, I do some funny things that my staff give me a bad time about. For instance, my office, my office is kept at about 63 degrees. And I, I love what I call door jam conversations. Um, as opposed to people that come in, you know, they sit in front of your desk, they put their feet up on their desk and they're like, ah, Ah, uh, had the had the kids and I went to this movie this week, and let me tell you about it. And you know, and not to say I don't like to be social, 
But when people come to my office, it's freezing and they give me a bad time about it. They're like, man, it's freezing in here. I, I, I like it on the colder side. But what will happen because it's freezing and they don't want to sit down is they'll have door jam conversation with me. And the door jam conversation will be very, very succinct. Hey, I got to tell you about this. This is what's going on. Here's how I'm dealing with it. Do you have any suggestions? Bam, 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 bam. That conversation, as opposed to somebody that sits down and has an hour meeting, you can get to succinct fact-finding and guidance within less than three to four minutes, okay? As opposed to, hey, let's sit down around a table and have some coffee and you know have some, some BS time about what you did over the weekend and so on. So you have to, if you, if you want to be really efficient and busy, you, you re, time is the thing you have to guard the most. So I have a lot of those door jam conversations. Um, I hate wasting time. That, that is the thing that, I mean, I, I could lose a lot of money. I don't, wouldn't like to do that. But if I lose time, it just infuriates me. And there's a real reason for that is that time is the only commodity that you can't create, right? You can't buy it. You can't create it. You can't manufacture it. So once that minute's gone, it's wasted. And so, you know, the other thing that I do is I, you know, a lot of people want to meet with me or talk with me or interview with me. And I put some really strict boundaries on my staff about what's appropriate. Um, if they have a bad candidate that's a bad interview and it goes through three or four layers and they send them on to me and they know it's a bad interview, uh, I'm going to have a problem with them. And I'm going to say, why, why did you do that? You know, we have to protect each other in terms of time. So there's all kinds of tricks that, that I do. Um, you know, you, you have to be very, you have to scrutinize who you meet with and how you spend their time. Because there's a lot of time vampires out there, man. Those people will suck you dry. Hey, I want to spend two hours with you. I want to pitch you on this deal. I want to do this. I want to do that. And if you let it happen, you're never going to be effective. Yeah, man. And is that is that a similar way how you treat your energy, like how you do energy management? Because just as you know, like just as you have a limited amount of time, you have a limited amount of energy, at least in your day. You know what I mean? No matter how superhuman you have, you are. There's so much that you can output in a day and it's very important where you put your output so and i know that's that's something maybe we can have a little conversation about energy energy and and um just living uh, as a whole because you have a whole company that's all about living you know age for living which i think we can touch base a lot which is really interesting yeah i, I mean ages living our healthcare company is is you know has won all kinds of awards about our programs and thinking and so on in terms of my personal uh you know the way i conserve energy the older you get, the more efficient you want to be with this uh, because age naturally steals energy, right? Um, so you know, the first thing I try to do is get great sleep. And sleep, you know, when you're young, you don't really, it's one of those things you don't really value. Um, you, may, you may want to sleep in later or go, God, I need this much sleep. But sleep is one of those things that is restorative from your creative process. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and until the time you're 30 years old, what happens with our bodies just on a cellular basis is our body produces more cells than it uses until you're 30. When you hit 30 is really when our body starts to die. And that may be depressing for some, but that's the biological reality of what happens. And what happens is on average, your body starts to consume more of your cells than it builds. So, um, so you, have to be, you have to be careful about how you consume your cells, how you burn up cells. And so sleep is one of the ways that you do that. If you get less than seven hours sleep, 
you're, you're robbing your body of restoring your cells, but you're also robbing your body of being to be able to expel the bad cells that need to be, you know, eliminated from your body. So I try to get great sleep. Um, I meditate every day for 20 minutes. Um, you know, part of the problem of being busy or successful or an entrepreneur is you got a lot on your mind. You know, I actually woke up at four o'clock this morning thinking about, oh, these are all the things I got on my mind. And I laid, you know, I was going through this list and I waited, laid awake until about 520 going through this list of things until I said, oh, I'm just going to meditate and try to put myself back to sleep. And I did for about another hour and a half. So you, when you meditate, you know, oftentimes if you're a busy serial entrepreneur, you know, I tell people it's like parking seven cars in a four car garage. You know, your, your garage or your brain only has so much room. And uh, because you have a lot going on, you want to put a lot into that, but it, you only hold so much. And so it spills over. And then that's when you get bad sleep and so on. Um, I think as you get older, you know, my goal, uh, I was put an article out on Instagram a couple of days ago, said my goal is to work in my 80s. So to do that, you know, I practiced, you know, Tai Chi, Qigong. Um, I work out. I do my interval training. I just bought this great Peloton treadmill that I'm in love with. Um, that the trainers kick my rear every day, you know, on it. Um, and so, uh, but I do a lot of stretching, I bike. So that exercise will give you a lot more energy, you know, a lot more physical. And, and I get, I spend about 20 hours a week trying to take care of myself. Now that, that may sound, what do you mean? What do you do at 20 hours a week? Well, between working out, I get acupuncture two hours a week. Um, you know, my, my working out five or six days a week. Um, getting massage. Uh, I have a nutritionist that I see. Um, you know, it, it can add up very quickly to 15 or 20 hours a week. Um, my meditation, so on. So you have, you're making an investment in you, and you know this, you know this because you're an athlete, right? So you know if you're training for a match or, you know, you're doing martial arts or you're boxing or whatever, you really have to train your body and your mind in a certain way, and you have to protect it, you know? you're not going to go out on an all-night rager you know two nights before you have a match you know it's just not going to work well with you so those are some of the things i do amazing what are you really passionate about right now man oh man there's a loaded question you know the problem uh when you're successful is you have so many interests and my biggest fear in the world is getting bored really that's my biggest fear in the world um so you know I, I love uh, I love writing. So this new book that I have coming out called Thirty Summers More, um, incredible book that I've worked on with a with a uh, an MD who was our, was our chief medical officer and a PhD. Um, and really, what I wanted to do was talk about uh, you know I've cared for sixty thousand elderly in my career, and I wanted to uh, I wanted to know why people live so, some live longer and some live less, and um, <clears throat> You know, people think, well, it's genetics. You know, my dad lived to 90, so I'm going to live to 90. But genetics is only about 18% of the reason that you live as long as you do. So the other 80, 80, 82% is within your control to change. So whether that's, you know, how you eat, how you exercise. And most people say, well, it just comes down to eating and exercise. The reality is it doesn't. And this, this was the fascinating thing for me. I mean, eating has a lot. Nutrition has a lot to do with it. Exercise has something to do with it. But the longest longevity study in, in the history of man was done by Harvard. It's about 80 years old. 
And what they found was really a, a happiness companionship factor. If, if you were married and happily married by the time you were 50 years old, the chances you could live a, a, an additional eight to 10 years, nothing, nothing else will make you live that much longer. Not nutrition, not exercise, none of those things. The other thing that, that I found in writing this book is, is the fact that purpose, you know, a lot of things that you talk about every day on your show, a lot of things that we've talked about, purpose in your life will extend your life by seven or eight years. So if you look at, there's an interesting thing that we did when we wrote the book. We looked at all U.S. presidents back to the 1950s, and we looked at the year that they were born, and we said, okay, how long should they live? Now, depending if they were born in the late 1800s or early 1900s, some of these guys should have lived to about 72, 73, whatever, based on their, uh, their life chart, their longevity chart. Well, as we started looking at it, presidents, with one exception, obviously Kennedy was assassinated, so you can't count him, but Johnson uh, was the only man that fell short of living beyond his life, life expectancy chart. Every other president, and, and keep in mind, president, most stressful job in the world, right? It was, it was stress kills. The most stressful job in the world, and yet these presidents, you look at George Bush, who just died uh, recently, he lived 20 years longer than his longevity chart. Jimmy Carter, who's still building houses for Habitat for Humanity, he's 20, 18, 20 years past his longevity. Well, how did these guys do it? You know, what's the secret? Well, the secret is purpose. They had a lot of purpose in their life, and they got a lot of acknowledgement for the purpose, right? Now, then what we started to do is we started looking at vice presidents, and we said, well, does this trend continue? Well, vice presidents don't have as much purpose in their life and they don't get as much credit for it. And what we started seeing is lot, as vice presidents were dying much, much earlier than expected, much earlier than presidents. So there's a, there's a, a trend between having great purpose in your life and getting acknowledged for it. You know, vice presidents are always the butt of late night jokes and so on. So they never really got the full encouragement for doing the great things that they did in the world. But presidents, you know, they're elitist. They get all the praise in the world and, and some criticism as well. So if you're doing something in life that gives you great fulfillment and great purpose and you get acknowledgement for it, it's, it's going to add years to your life. So, you know, I'm passionate about educating people on these. Um, the book 30 Summers More is going to be it's going to come out on Amazon probably here at the end of April. Um, and all, all the books I've, you know, I've written six books now. 100% of the profits of all these books go to charity. So it's not, I'm not doing it to get rich. You know, I, I'm doing it to educate and motivate uh, the world and, and have, have be a teacher in this world. Absolutely. Nice. So one of the reasons that, I, nice, so there was multiple reasons where I was interested in having you on the show, but one of them was I saw, so you were, you got involved in, in film production, you know, that I'm in the film industry. So I was curious, like, what was your reason of getting involved in that, your passion for film? I don't know if there was anything specific or. Yeah, yeah, there was. I mean, um, I have a few friends that are in the Hollywood crowd and they, they kept hitting me up to do their passion projects, usual, usually documentaries. And uh, they'd say, hey, can you, you know, can you give me a hundred thousand to do this, this documentary or a couple hundred thousand to do this social justice film or whatever. And I did it a couple of times and I thought, what, why don't I just do this myself? You know, I have, I have films that I'm interested in, causes that I am interested in. So I developed a production company called True Productions. And, um, and it, you know, I only do true stories. And, um, you know, one of, one of the first ones I did was a story called uh, Full Court, the Spencer Haywood story. And Spencer Haywood was, is a Hall of Fame basketball player. 
but he was the first guy not to have four years of college that was allowed into the NBA. And he actually had to sue the NBA to get in. And he was, him and his family were sharecroppers. They were picking cotton and, uh, you know, for a dollar a day. And he could go to the NBA and make like a million dollars. And, but the NBA wouldn't let him in because of this college thing. So he sued the NBA and was, uh, you know, able to go into the NBA and, and obviously became a Hall of Famer. So that, that uh, became a, a social justice movie. It's less about basketball and more about, about uh, a person's plight, about how when something you believe in, you take it to the highest level. And it went all the way to the United Supreme Court and they sided with him and, you know, his, his career, the rest is history. So that was my first movie. I've done movies uh, where I've been executive producer on a big movie about, uh, it's called Big Sonia, uh, about a Holocaust survivor uh, who's, Big Sonia is actually a real person. She's about four foot 10, about 90 pounds, and gives a courageous story about, you know, living through the Holocaust and so on. Um, I've done films on immigration, on the opioid crisis, on, um, on an aging parents in China. I just got involved in a, a film called Path to Freedom, the Civil War movie about uh, you know a, a, a soldier that escapes and and is looking for his freedom. So, you know, my passion is about telling true stories and about uh, you know letting these things float to the surface that you know have great significance in our society. Nice. Very cool, man. We're gonna start wrapping up, but before we do, I'd like to ask you, like, what is success to, to yourself and to doing Clark? Oh, what's success? You know, I've been poor longer than I've been wealthy. And um, everybody thinks when I make this much money, I'll be successful or I'll be happy or whatever. Um, that's a fallacy. Um, my wife and I, and we, we talk about this maybe once a week, we get invited to some of the most incredible events in the world. Um, you know, we, we had a private audience with the Pope three weeks ago. Um, not too many people can say that. We've, we've met four presidents. Um, but, you know, our favorite thing to do is, is uh, watch a Netflix movie and eat popcorn, you know, in our pajamas on our bed. So <laughs> the success is probably not how you fantasize it. Um, really, if you have you know, health, if you have a great family, um, and if you can make a difference in the world, impact the world, leave it better than when it was when you came in, that's success. It's not, you know, having a billion dollars. It's not, my net worth is going to be this. It's not, you know, I drive this car. It's not, I got, you know, on this TV series. It's really about health, family, and making a difference. And if you can have those three, man, you're, you're in rare air and you're going to be incredibly successful. Well, yeah, man. Thanks for sharing that. I guess I'll ask you the last thing, bro. I give you a piece of paper right now. And on that piece of paper, I want you to write down from all the experiences that you had in your life, from everything that you've lived so far, all, everything that you've learned, you have to write down what you want to pass on to a loved one, maybe a daughter, a son, you know, someone, and you're going to leave that, behind and that's the thing that they're going to grab and they're going to look at every morning put in their pocket and keep on looking every day for the rest of their lives what would you write on that piece of paper and what would be your words of success well that's an easy one for me because about uh four years ago um i'm about to have my ninth grandchild and my wife and i were talking we said what do we want to pass on to our grandchildren um and uh 
and I said, well, why don't I write them a little book of wisdom? You know, I'll kick this out in a couple of weeks. And these are all the lessons that I want them to know, right? And uh, it took me four years to write that book. And um, so I was, I was telling some friends about it, some CEO friends, some very senior, uh, high, high uh, echelon business guys. There's about 12 guys in the room. And I started telling them, I'm going to write this book for my grandchildren. And as I started talking to them, a couple of the guys started to tear up. I thought, man, what did I say? Did I do something wrong? And as I talked to them, they said, oh, man, I wish my dad would have done that or my granddad or my grandmother. I wish I had those, that book of wisdom in my life. And it really moved them emotionally. So I went back and I talked to my publishing people and they said, you know, we think this is a book for more than your grandchildren. We think this is a book about facilitating conversation about legacy. So I wrote a book. You can buy it on Amazon. It's called A Big Life, A Big Life from Dwayne J. Clark. And we kind of turned it into a game where you have die and you roll the die. And uh, it, the die corresponds to the page in the book. And, uh, and that, that page gives you a topic to have conversation. And people take this thing on road trips. They, they, they talk to their family about the holidays on it. And I'm getting emails from people about, God, I just found out this about my grandfather that I never knew before. Or my mom and dad shared this story with me that I've never learned before. So my, my passion in life, Juan, is to really help people create artifacts, what I call living artifacts in their life. And so, you know, there's not one piece of wisdom, but I wrote that book for my grandchildren that they can go to it and there's, you know, over a hundred pieces of wisdom in there. And so I think, I think for your listeners, what I'd say is, what is your living artifact? You know, we're, we're not promised infinite life on this planet. So when you, when you pass on to the great, yonder whatever your belief system is what is that one thing or that hundred things that you that you leave here that's your living artifact is it a book is it a movie is it a radio show is it a podcast is it a piece of art is it a building you know what is it what is it that you live that's your living artifact they could say oh man when Juan Gray was here he did this and it was phenomenal man that that's created such a difference in my community so I would just leave you with that you know, create your living artifact today because, uh, you know, we're, we're all, we all have a finite amount of time on this spinning ball. Wow. Nice, man. I, I really appreciate that. And, uh, I appreciate you, bro. Thank you for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure and I can't wait to, to, uh, do some business with you in the, the future. All right, man. I, I, I believe in your show. Keep going, keep moving forward. You're doing a great job. I appreciate that, man. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Juan. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation with Dwayne J. Clark. If you want to learn more about Dwayne, you can go to wordstosuccess.com under episodes, and it's all there. Also, one thing that you guys suggested is to add some more words to success in the intros and in the outros. So we're going to start doing that for you guys. The words to success quote of the day is, if you quit once, it becomes a habit. So just never quit. Keep that in mind when you want to stop something, even if it's small, it doesn't matter. Keep going and complete it. Get to the finish line. Don't ever quit. Sometimes you might have to stop, take a step back, but never quit because that becomes a habit. It weakens your brain. It weakens your actual power. You don't want to weaken your power. You want to become stronger every single day and you want your mind to become stronger every single day. So don't quit. 
Don't let it become a habit. Let's go. I'll see you in the next episode. Vamos. Vamos. Vamos.